All right. Hey, y'all. It is Casey Smith, and I have some news. Glennon Screen, unfortunately, isn't able to join us for our bonus recap recording today, which makes us very sad. This is terrible. I know. It's a travesty. So I will be stepping in, doing my best. You're amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. No one that. is Glennon's, but <laughs> no you are amazing. No one is Glennon's. I'm not going to do a Glennon's impression for sure. That will not happen. Clearly the future is female. Um, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> and that person that you just heard is one of our guests here in the studio, Senator Melinda Bush. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. And our other special guest, the brand spanking new state senator, Robert Peters. I'm honored to be here and excited to say exciting things. And of course, always, everyone's favorite, fun employed father of two, Daniel Biss, is here with us. So have no fear. The Daniel's leader of the here. ship is here. I mean, I feel like that's a, that's a pretty competitive category right there. <laughs> Um, so this bonus episode is going to be a little different from past episodes of Ill-Informed in that it's current. We're going to be taking some time to do some in-the-moment political commentary here because we just came off of a massive, massive legislative session um, where a ton got done. I read the headlines. It was record-breaking and wow and phenomenal and all the things. And it was. Yeah. Not since the Illinois Constitution has more been achieved. Wow. All right. So, I mean, the takeaway here is if you are a, uh, a fan of your government not doing much, this was a very bad week for you. Um, so, Terrence Rauner? <laughs> yeah. Robert. <laughs> I thought it was Ruiner. <laughs> um, so, Daniel, want to give us like a brief kind of like overview recap of like these are all the major happenings that are happening and then we can dive in? Yeah. And I mean, look, it's really true. A ton happened. A, a, Genuinely, all kidding aside, historic amount happened. We were we were talking on the phone earlier that you know for several years when Melinda and I were in the Senate together and Rauner was the governor, the legislature would be in session in June for like remedial reasons, right? Like it's summer and you're supposed to be on break, but you're back in school to sort of try to pass freshman English that one last time and and maybe pass a budget you should have passed a year and a half ago. Here they busted through the May 31st deadline into June because they were like taking extra AP chemistry classes to, to get extra credit, passing just backlogs and backlogs of things dating back not only through the four years of kind of inaction when Rauner was governor, Democrats controlled the legislature, but years before that. So, so to me, there's like basically four categories. First of all, there's what you might call the kind of progressive or liberal kind of triumphs that J.B. Pritzker, the new governor, pushed that I think many people believe needed this kind of moment of political change to be passable. So certainly the $15 minimum wage that passed several months ago is one of them. A uh, new bill to legalize the recreational use of cannabis is one of them. And then putting the fair tax constitutional amendment referendum on the ballot, which will trigger a referendum in November of 2020 to change our tax structure. That's one of them. These are big long-standing progressive priorities that were kind of joint projects of the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the legislature and the newly elected governor. And to be clear, the referendum, that means this is going to show up as a question on our ballots in 2020, and then we all get to weigh in. Yeah, so, when we're when we're voting for or against yeah. Donald Trump's re-election, I know how I'm voting, <laughs> we're, we're going to also have this sort of technical but unbelievably important question about tax policy that there'll be a whole year and a half long, very expensive campaign to educate people about between now and then. 
So that's one category, sort of big progressive priorities that have been kind of on the docket for a long time. Then one category is things that are like important and significant, um, but you would sort of want or expect them to happen with or without a new governor. So one was something called the uh, Reproductive Health Act, a very significant piece of pro-choice legislation that, you know, you would think with the political orientation of Illinois and the partisan orientation of people in the legislature, you'd think it would have just been kind of a thing that would happen. But actually, the Speaker, Mike Madigan, had worked pretty hard to stop it from passing. And if it weren't for tremendous activist energy, in part in the wake of really, really aggressive anti-abortion legislation that passed in places like Alabama and Georgia, it probably wouldn't have seen the light of day. But the reaction to Alabama and Georgia created a big mobilization that pushed Madigan. That's one example. Another example, sounds crazy, sounds radical, can't believe it, but the legislature passed a balanced budget. Like, again, supposed to happen every year. Wild. I know. Wild stuff. It's nutty. I can't even believe we're saying this. And, and it's, I barely know what it means. Right. Well, the legislators especially don't, right? <laughs> but, it, it's new to me. <laughs> but but for, for real, like it's a thing that you would expect to just sort of happen as a matter of course, but in recent years in Illinois, it, it has not. And then the last thing in this category that I'm especially uh, grateful that Senator Bush is here in the, in the studio is um, landmark legislation uh, on sexual harassment. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Senator Bush spearheaded a very, very... Um, comprehensive, detailed process to write really strong legislation. We were very, um, we thought that we were seeing signals that Madigan was trying to bury it. And uh, the fact that ultimately a only slightly watered down version passed with everyone's agreement, I think is a real victory of uh, Senator Bush's legislative maneuvering and her willingness to really call the question on something that is critical and politically popular, but powerful people in the Capitol were maybe a little bit queasy about. So that's kind of the second category. How's that sound, Senator? I mean, that's got to feel pretty good. Sitting yeah, here and, and letting and Daniel and just it, And it sounds, sounds pretty spot on, too. <laughs> you know, one thing I want to add to that, though, Daniel, is um, these amazing new uh, women legislators that were elected. Yeah. I mean, I really yeah. um, hold them up um, as, uh, as a beacon, really, if not for their push in the House, frankly, when we saw one state after another fall with these unbelievably restrictive abortion laws that they're obviously trying to get to the Supreme Court, you know, to overturn Roe v. Wade. If not for those newly elected women, I don't know that this bill would, that the RHA would have been called. Could you unpack that for us? So, I mean, I think if you're just listening to this podcast and you feel like, well, Democrats are usually pro-choice, huge Democratic majorities in the Illinois legislature, you know, this is a pro-choice bill, Planned Parenthood's for it. What what is it that stops something like that from passing? And what was it that these new, bold women freshman legislators did to make it go? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, um, there was a lot going on this session. And when the RHA, the Reproductive Health Act, was originally introduced, we introduced it in the Senate and the House, and we really thought that it was going to move. Um, Pretty quickly, it was held up in a committee. Uh, And, you know, frankly, I think most of us that were advocates were really wondering what was going on. And then we saw the messaging uh, anti against uh, against these um, 
both both sides, both in the House and the Senate. So this is not messaging from legislators, it's messaging from outside no. groups that are fighting against the bill. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, what we've got really going on across this country, as no one is surprised to hear in this room, is we elected a president who's a misogynist. We elected a president, you know, who frankly made it very clear that it was okay to grab a woman by some part that I won't say rhymes with hussy, um, you know, and that that was kind of okay out there. And so then what we've seen is this incredible uh, pushback against abortion rights and against a woman's right for reproductive health care. So I think that message out there um, made people a little bit uh, leery of moving something. And then when we started to see one state after another fall, you know, I know I started to talk to some of the representatives, the new women that were elected in the House, and they're like, we've got to call this. We have got to pass this. And they started you know, as you and I both know, and Senator Peters, you know, we know how many votes we need to pass something. They knew they needed 60 in the House. And frankly, these newly elected women started to work. And they called me yeah. when they had 59 and said, we're almost there. I believe it was their going to the Speaker of the House, frankly, and saying, we've got, we've got the votes. We want this called. So, so part of what I think I'm hearing is you're saying that there's some people, maybe the Speaker of the House, who would rather kind of sit on the fence on these issues and seeing other states choose one direction or the other made some people feel like in Illinois, hey, we got to pick. We got to pick a side. And if we are going to think of ourselves as pro choice, we've got to put our money where our mouth is and not just play it safe politically. Absolutely. So, what exactly did the RHA, did the Re- Reproductive Health Act, do that changed things in Illinois? Because I know personally, like, I think of Illinois as a place where abortion is fairly accessible and I like I remember HB 40 was addressing certain issues. So I guess like what's the difference about this? What what did this legislation really like change in Illinois? So the RHA is a whole new act. So it's taking literally years of things that have been struck down by the courts, um, you know, through the years, literally striking those things. So removing things like, uh, you know, a woman has to go to her husband before she can have an abortion. A doctor can be arrested if they do an abortion. So those things. So we codified a lot of things into law. We also made it really clear that women's reproductive health shouldn't be treated any differently than any other health decision. So I'd say those are the two biggest pieces. Um, And I think it became, and it also includes too, reproductive health isn't just about an abortion, which is what we heard everything seemed to be about. It's about all of our reproductive health mm. as women. Mm-hmm. It's about contraception. It's about, you know, miscarriages. It's about uh, birth control. It's about um, cancer screening. Mm. So kind of all of your reproductive health. Um, so we have a new Reproductive Health Act uh, that removes all of those old pieces of law that have been um, found to be unconstitutional. So it's really cleaning up and creating a new act that deals specifically with women's reproductive health. And if I could just step back for folks who may not be in the weeds of this. Um, so there's a lot of laws on the books in Illinois that the courts have struck down because of Roe v. Wade and other pro-choice rulings at the Supreme Court level, like, like the laws you mentioned. Um, you know, someone, a woman has to get permission for her husband to have an abortion, for instance. That, that's on the books in Illinois. It's just the courts have said you can't enforce yeah, totally. that. Yeah. And when those laws passed in places like Alabama that were clearly designed to go to the Supreme Court and try to overturn Roe v. Wade, folks who were looking at this said, wait a second, we can't any longer rely on Roe v. Wade to keep these laws that are on the books in Illinois from being enforced. Instead, we got to actually take those laws off the books because Roe v. Wade could go away. 
absolutely. And mm-hmm. that provides those protections should Roe v. Wade go away. So they would have to take the state of Illinois, you know, we would have to go through a court process to remove those things or to, you know, go after the state of Illinois and, and women's rights in the state of Illinois. And I think it's so important, too, that, I mean, this really became a moment in time, you know, that I think, you know, and certainly we were working very hard to make sure that this bill passed. Mm-hmm. Um it became a moment in time where Illinois, we wanted to stand up. Look, I have my new hashtag, Be Like Illinois, because we are a state that is certainly progressive, that believes in equality, believes in a woman's rights, believes in LGBTQ rights, and believes in justice. And I'm pretty proud of what we've done this year. Ooh, how are you feeling, Robert, coming off of this? <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I think um, I went to school in Kansas, Um and so a lot of things that I feel like are expanding across the country were something I, I saw when I was in college uh, between 2004 and 2009. Um, and, you know, I was in Kansas uh, when uh, a clinic was bombed and, and Tiller was killed uh, and assassinated and um, sort of also the same thing in terms of, you know, sort of the attacks on black and brown folks. Um, and so as that's been growing and the right has been building more and more power, I, I feel like Illinois, especially just this session, whether it's the RHA or across the board, uh, sort of helped change the conversation about all the negative things that are happening in this country that can almost be a deorganizing issue um, where people then don't feel motivated to keep doing the work. If you feel like you're losing all the time, you don't want to be part of the quote unquote resistance if you're not resisting. Um and so if there's anything that I feel about this session uh, is the fact that it was sort of a turning of the tide uh, in the Midwest. Um, and something that I really said was like, it is, um, I feel a sense of responsibility not to be a blue dot surrounded by red, uh, but sort of to be the start of a tsunami uh, that really builds uh, power and sets an example and a tone for the rest of the country for what progressive legislation and power building can look like. I think it's also important to, you know, you talk about red and blue, and those are the shorthand for Democrats and Republicans, but I think it's also important to talk about how activists who were standing for certain issues didn't accept what their party leadership set for them as the limits. Instead, they said, we're fighting for these issues, and um, if that makes Democrats uncomfortable or if it makes Republicans uncomfortable, we're just going to do it. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest changes that I'm seeing in Springfield. You know, um, certainly you and I served at a time, Daniel, when we talked often about the top down, you know, and really wanting to see a more leadership come from, you know, frankly, the members. Yeah. I'm really seeing that change. It's and I'm seeing so members important. that are standing up and when things aren't happening, pushing back, you know, and, and really going after those things. And I think it's so important because, you know, it's been a place where, um, I would say transactional politics has been the rule of the day. And I think these are people that have been elected, you know, certainly people like yourself, Senator Peters, um, where they were elected to accomplish certain things. And I think that's what's important, getting the work done. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you here because you're being too modest. Um, and so someone has to tell the <laughs> truth about Melinda Bush. So the traditional way that people get elected to legislative seats, particularly in kind of politically competitive suburban districts, is they're, especially in the House, is they're recruited by the party leadership and kind of told what to do by the party leadership. And it takes them years to kind of get out from under that thumb and spread their own wings. And, you know, Melinda in the last election took it upon herself to 
groom a lot of women candidates running in Lake County who were running in districts that someone like Mike Madigan used to not even look at as competitive, but Melinda was able to help them become competitive on their own. And now they get to the House and the Speaker, Mike Madigan, is telling them, you got to do what I want you to do. And they're saying, you can get me here. I got here based on an independent political network. And that political independence leads to independent behavior in the legislature. I want to go on a little bit through the list that Casey asked me to start with. We started with sort of big progressive priorities, and then we talked about stuff that maybe should have happened anyway, but wouldn't have in many years. And then I want to talk about a third category, which is kind of, whoa, these are things that we always talk about but never happen, and they actually happened this year. So, you know, Melinda and I were in the Senate together for six years, and I'm guessing you'll agree. I know it felt like longer to hang out with me for that long. I apologize. No, that's Um, the part I miss. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, I bet you'll agree that every single May, as the end of session was coming up, all the lobbyists would come around and say, hey, there's a gaming bill that's going to move. We're going to pass a bill that's going to put a casino in Chicago. And and I know that I said that last year and it all fell apart, but this time it's real. And it always fell apart. And this time they actually passed a giant gaming bill. They passed a giant capital infrastructure bill to do all kinds of construction, roads and bridges and schools and buildings and all kinds of stuff. All of these things that every year we talk about as a maybe, but then sort of don't happen because of the politics, they all wound up not only happening, but getting agreed upon in like a 24-hour period, basically. And bipartisan. Bipartisan, you know, like on May 31st, right? With you know, big bipartisan majorities voting for an increase in the gas tax, right? How many Republicans Unheard campaigned of. on a gas tax increase, but most of them voted for it because they know the need for these infrastructure projects. So that, that was to me, like, shocking, frankly. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of it, and certainly my opinion, right, and I've learned how to read the tea leaves pretty well, but I really think it does matter uh, when you have a governor that is looking at a longer time to get something done. I mean, Mm. I really felt that the Prisker agenda was uh, more of a 10-year plan and saying, look, these are the things we have to do to solve the structural problems instead of looking at what's going to get me reelected in two years. It may be the one benefit or of many um, of having a billionaire governor. Frankly, he doesn't, uh, maybe his reelection isn't as important. But I think that what I've, what I really saw is for the first time since I've been there, frankly, is we really seem to looking be looking at ways to really solve the problems. And if that meant that I was going to take tough votes, that people were going to take tough votes to vote for increases in revenue where we needed them to fix real structural problems, then we were going to do it. And I'm really proud of that. We haven't seen that in government. We sure don't see it at the federal government. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that everything passed, right? It wasn't it wasn't like all but one thing passed. It was everything, the budget, the revenue to fund the budget, the so-called horizontal capital, which means roads, the so-called vertical capital, which means buildings, Buildings, the revenue for the horizontal capital, the revenue for the vertical capital. Is it a coincidence that everything passed as opposed to almost everything? Or was it somehow in a place where either this giant deal was going to get worked out or else there was going to be kind of a train wreck? I think it was a giant deal that had to be worked out. I think there were so many moving parts, but I think if you were someone who wanted to make sure we had capital, um, horizontal and vertical, to repair bridges, build schools, repair, you know, needed infrastructure, that if you didn't vote for the gaming bill, you know, and, and frankly, that is ongoing revenue, 
right? So that's really important. It's not something that we're going to have to bond out the largest portion of, right? So that was really important. I think there were so many things that were tied together that if you didn't vote for one piece of them, it all falls apart. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? Like, I mean, I think about myself as a legislator, and I'll be show, show some personal cards. I hate gay men. I oh, I, it. it makes me feel ditto. terrible. It makes me sweat. And I always voted against it. I always I, voted against so it. So did I. Because it felt like, you know, we're just taxing poor people for the sake of taxing poor people. But now you're saying maybe, and, and by the way, that's why it fell apart. And a lot of people felt that way. But now you're saying it had a big bipartisan majority, not because people changed their mind about that, but because they saw it as part of a necessary package to actually build long-term sustainability for the state. Is, Absolutely. That, is that right? I would say that's spot on. How about you, Senator Peters? I mean, I would agree. I think tying it to the fact that we're actually going to build infrastructure and have the vertical that goes with it is actually important. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's refreshing to know that we're going to actually create so many jobs. Uh, It just felt like a snowball going down a hill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where um, maybe it's looking back and I was like, oh, how could this have not have happened? Uh, You know, I, I don't, it just, it was like tense and it was so close uh, but then looking back on it, I was like, oh, my God, the amount of things we just did in, in a week's time, I'm new. Is this normal? No. Should no. I expect this? <laughs> you're spoiled now. No. no. No, you're spoiled forever. Yeah. So. yeah, we had four years of literally doing almost nothing and really trying to destroy the state of Illinois. I believe, obviously, we all know Governor Rauner had some very different opinions about government. He really didn't believe in government, frankly. Didn't believe in uh, the middle class either, but anyway. And that brings me to the last category, actually, which is that that – you know, every year, even when Rauner was governor, hundreds of bills pass. And so this year, like any other bill, hundreds of bills pass. And some of them are truly, really uncontroversial and maybe honestly don't do a whole lot, but some are, are more significant. And what I what I saw this year was not just the usual volume of that stuff, but four years of pent-up demand. And so, for example, on the last day of session, Robert, I was like clicking reload on the state website to see if you were going to pass a particular bill. I had a real attachment to a bill that Robert was working to pass, a bill that uh, enacts a, an important, um, technical, but an important criminal justice reform. And I was interested in it because I care about the subject and because I love Robert, but also because it was my bill. It was a bill that I had I had passed and Bruce Rauner had vetoed. And in fact, just for me as one member of the legislature, at least three bills were passed this session that were repassing of bills that I had done that Rauner had vetoed and now the expectation is Governor Pritzker will sign them. And so, and I guess what I'm asking is, was committee deadline week busier than usual? Was there just sort of more stuff around at it was every insane. level? Okay. It was insane. The entire session was just moving like, um, like a high-speed rail train, right? There was so much that was going on. Everybody was working. It was... Um, and really just an insane amount of legislation that was moving through. And I'd say a lot of it was because things were held up for four years. You know, certainly I'm looking at Robert thinking, yeah, you think this is normal, right? Uh, What we know as normal was looking at how many things we knew we couldn't get done, being very frustrated by the process. So I would say it definitely moved more quickly. Um, There was a lot going on. But I also, I'm going to add something that uh, you didn't ask, but... I believe that, you know, you saw a lot of women carry uh, larger pieces of legislation this year, with exception of the gaming bill. Most of the big pieces of legislation were carried by women. And what I believe is happening in the General Assembly, and I hope it continues because I think it's so important, I believe that we are negotiating on issues. So when Mm -hmm. you are working Mm -hmm. on a big bill, you know, there are a lot of moving parts, as you know, a lot of people that are involved. But I believe what's happening is we're talking about the issue, and we're trying to get that done and continuing to work until we come to agreement and there's a lot of compromise that occurs in that. 
I believe we're moving away, and I hope we're moving away from something we call transactional politics. Yeah. You know, when we trade things, when I trade my bad bill for your bad bill, we're not getting good policy. Right. I think it's why we saw so much, in my mind, good policy actually happen. I, I also add, I think that the politics are changing um, both in terms of gender, racial, and generational. Yeah. Um, just speaking as one of the younger uh, members, third youngest, uh, if anybody's listening and has looked at my face and wondered why is this 15-year-old in the state Senate, you'll be shocked. I'm 34. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Who knew? It, yeah, it's, it's wild. What um, moisturizer do you use? Yeah. <laughs> Nature. Share your secrets um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> um, You know, Robert just found Springfield to be a very calming environment. <laughs> it, it, it was like yoga, especially my open-door policy. Um, but, um, and I think that because as a generation of folks, it's just we have a different approach to, um, you know, Melinda was talking about the young young women in the house who were just like, nah, we're not going to go go along this way. I mean, I think there's a sort of, a, you know, it, the joke about being a millennial is that you want a participation trophy. Um, the, the other side of that is uh, we demand the participation trophy. <laughs> so um, though you can look at it as a negative or you can look at it as in we don't care about your rules. This is what we need and what we want. And if not, we'll come together and figure out how to do it. And I, I, I felt a sense of um, sort of a hope um, just as a, as a younger legislator, um, as a younger state senator to be like, you know, I don't know, I don't know these rules um, that we're supposed to go by and um, I don't care and here's my strategy within that. <laughs> I want to follow up on that question though because I think, and I'm not trying to flatter you just as a thank you for coming on the podcast. You're talking um, to me? Yeah. I'm bad at compliments. I mean, it's going to be a question with a, with a very subtle compliment embedded in it that you won't even notice. Um, I feel like a lot of first-term legislators um, do pretty much only earn a participation trophy, right? You're in your first year. You're trying to figure out how it all works. You want to, like, show up to committee on time. You want to, you know, like, uh, make sure that you know where the bathrooms are on the, the, the Senate floor. And it's okay to, like, not necessarily lead super heavy legislative lifts because you're just kind of running drills and practicing. That's not how you conducted yourself this year at all. You you know, the bill that I mentioned was a bill that passed very narrowly. You passed legislation to ban private uh, um, immigration detention centers. These are controversial, big issues. And so I'm, I'm wondering, here you are, you came in, brand new legislator, took on these big issues in a session that was anyways just a hurricane. Um, was it difficult to get your bearings, and do you feel like taking on all that also enabled you to kind of learn what you needed to learn for next year? Do you what what do you come out of these first five months as a legislator, having learned and ready to do next? Yeah, um, I remember when I first got down there, it was a holy shit. Um, what's going on here? And um, are we allowed to say that, Casey? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Just don't drop the f bomb. I Sorry, was told Mom. that I can only curse a few times. On yeah, we, were, we went over this before you got here. Daniel. So I just want to make it very clear that I intentionally sure, tell everyone sure. I was late. Whatever. It's <laughs> fine. I didn't know I couldn't use the f bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I was I was actually like just freaked out. Um, I didn't know how people would look at me and how they would treat me and um, whether I would quote unquote fit in. Um, I you know I have a really really progressive politics and uh, I think there's a lot of assumptions made about how mm -hmm. I operate and I didn't know how people would treat that. Um, 
And the one thing I, I tend to live by is that I I first watch. I mean, my my whole thing is, and I say my story all the time, so people have heard it like, oh, geez, he's going to say the same story over and over again. But I mean, I was deaf and I was had a speech impediment. So the only thing I really was good at is watching and I, communicating through watching and then doing um, because I had no other way of communicating. So the same thing with uh, – um, session, I, the bill that I, I passed on that last day was the first bill I decided to try to do floor debate on, and it went horrible. I mean, And so by that, you, the first, that was your first bill that you were like presenting in the Senate floor with, with Republicans yelling at you, basically. Yes, yeah, yeah. so I was getting just chewed out on the floor, and folks were like, you gotta, you're going to have to like pull the bill and bring it back later. And I was so mad, but I thought I had to do it. I was like, I'm not going to just do... Uh, something really easy. I'll go for something, you know, tougher and see how I do it and, and learn from there. Um, and at a, and then there was a point in a, another time on the floor where I was so nervous. It, it was um, uh, the bill to um, allow minor consent in terms of PrEP. Um, so an HIV prevention drug uh, that is affecting black and brown uh, gay youth with higher rates of HIV while everyone else is essentially stagnant. Um, and so there was a sort of paternalistic uh, patriarchal argument being made. And it was like the first time I had a moment, like I kind of joke, it's like Will Ferrell in old school during the debate when he completely blacks out and he gives this epic answer and everyone's <laughs> like, oh my God, where'd that come from? And he goes, I have no clue, I blacked out. When I was doing my closing, I just, as if nobody mattered anymore, I was just like, I'm gonna go in and do my closing and you know, go go really hard at it. And then everyone comes up after like, that was amazing, that was amazing. I was like, I will be honest, I have no clue what just happened. I've completely <laughs> blacked out and uh, I, I, I guess that was good. Um, but- You ought to black, black out more often because it was impressive, truly. Um, the way you ran that bill, uh, no one would have guessed you were a freshman. You did an amazing job on the last day of session with that, Senator. Thank we can you. probably get audio of it if you want to figure out what it sounds like when you black out. Um, I, we can totally get audio. I'm on a podcast where this weirdly will be said, but the sound of my voice is something that I don't necessarily enjoy. Um, so. <laughs> I think that's universal, actually. I I would like, I mean, this is all warm and fuzzy and beautiful and lovely and kumbaya and everything's great, but there was also a couple things that didn't pass. Um, so I'd actually love to talk a little bit about the couple things that didn't pass. The two in particular that are on my radar, one, the elected school board for Chicago, and two was um, Cook County Assessor Fritz Kage was pushing for a bill that would affect property tax reform. And this particular one, I was kind of paying attention to. One of the things we've talked about on the podcast is some of the conflicts of interest with our wonderful property tax attorneys who also serve as legislators. And I guess I wonder if, like, how much that had to do with the fact that that bill didn't go forward. It seemed pretty common sense, at least to to me, right? So, what are is there any story to the things that didn't move when everything else was so getting passed? I don't live in Chicago, you know. Obviously, I pretend that I do and and play a Chicagoan um, on television. <laughs> um, but I'm in, you know, obviously the north suburbs. I'm up in Lake mm. County. Uh, I would. The school board issue, you know, if you want to take that one, certainly, Senator, I think you're closer to that and probably have a better feel. Yeah, the school board issue. Um, well, it did not move in the Senate. <laughs> um, 
And I think there's uh, a lot of reasons for why it didn't move. Can I focus the question a little bit, Robert? Please definitely do, so Daniel. There was a mayoral election during, yeah. the course of the, um, during the course of the session. Both candidates for mayor came out in support of an elected school board when they were campaigning, but one had the support of the Chicago, Chicago Teachers Union and one didn't, the one who didn't wound up winning. And clearly, her Mayor Lightfoot had a lot to do with this bill not moving. And so to me, that raises a couple questions. Number one, she raised specific technical concerns with the way in which the bill is structured. Is that just trying to kind of drag feet, or is there an effort that's going to happen to actually construct a different elected school board bill that is more in keeping with her vision of it? And then second, does the kind of interest group politics around the election have anything to do with the pace at which this is going? So I'll give an honest assessment while I'm trying to build a great relationship with our mayor and build a good – I have a good relationship with the teachers union. Uh, And I think the one thing that people can learn about what that means here in politics is it's really complicated. Um, But I would think about this as in – to be frank, that both are playing a game around uh, um, collective bargaining. Um, the contract mm. is my my belief. I actually don't know, so I'm I'm just speculating. Um, but, so there's the the union and the school district are going to be negotiating a contract real soon, and there's some question about will there be a agreement, will there be a strike, and both sides, of course, in that situation, try to gain leverage when they walk up to the bargaining table. Yeah, and, I, and the the one thing I'll put it is. Um, uh, a good organizer uh, and also a good lawyer uh, like to have as many options to be able to negotiate on as possible. So that is my, my suspicion is that uh, Lori, who is a good and accomplished lawyer, uh, and C2, which is really great at union organizing and negotiating, uh, have a lot on the line here uh, to negotiate on. So I think that, to me, that's what I'm seeing here. Um, mm. And uh, I, I can see where both are, are, are going at with this. I will say, though, that I would like an elected representative school board. Um, I think we need, to, we need to have that. I think it's, it's just more democracy over our education is, is better. Um, yeah, it's something we've talked about a couple different times on the podcast, for sure. So is this something that you feel like will probably just come up again next year or – or even in the fall. I mean, in is it something that, that maybe this maybe this holdup will just evaporate once the contract is negotiated? I'm not making any predictions on this because I don't know how contracts. <laughs> how, I, I have no clue what conversations are happening, so I don't think those. I, I don't think I can really make a speculation. I'll say this: if it if contract negotiations don't go well, then this issue does not. This issue is going to get bigger and bigger and get more dramatic and worse. If contract negotiations go well, and which you know, you know, hopefully they do, uh, um, then I think we have a better idea. Uh, we can have a we we can have more hope on what happens next here. Um, so I, I think it's very complex within the politics between uh, the union and management, um, and I, you know, I think that I I, I want to see how this plays out. Um, so. So yep. um, just um, on 
Chicago, obviously. I think, you know, my sense um, is that uh, Mayor Lightfoot has come in. Uh, she wanted to make sure that she was part of whatever is going on. I do believe we're going to take it up. I don't know if it's going to be in fall veto. My suspicion is probably next session. But cool. but I want to answer the Fritz Kage question. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, please. So Fritz Kage, that was a bill that actually came through revenue, which is a committee um, that I sit on. Senator Hutchinson uh, carried that bill. Um, after a lot of work, we moved that bill out of the revenue committee in the Senate, and it went to the Senate, and we passed it. Um, and passed it over the House. So that really got held up in the House. Right. Um, looking forward to hearing a little bit more of those conversations. Seems like maybe there were some politics there, uh, but I'm pretty sure he's going to be back next year. Yeah, for sure. And it's just, it was an interesting alliance, right? You had the Speaker of the House and the kind of business lobby lined up against the reform and progressive assessor. And I think most people who've only read one or two things about Mike Madigan, they don't imagine he's like marching arm in arm with the retail merchants and the manufacturers in the Chamber of Commerce, but um, his interests on property taxes are different than other Democrats, perhaps. Let, let me just jump to one last topic we wanted to cover because we're running out of time. So the putting the constitutional amendment referendum on the ballot was a huge thing. It was different from a math standpoint than everything else because it required supermajorities, right? The a vote needs bill needs 30 votes to pass the Senate, but a constitutional amendment needs 36, 60 in the House versus 71. And so it was much tougher to get the numbers on this in the House. And Governor Pritzker really worked aggressively to get every single Democrat on board, including a couple of guys um, uh, who had really said they weren't going to vote for it in very, very aggressive public ways. They had said, this effort to have wealthy people pay more in income taxes doesn't do enough to fix the property tax issue, and we're not going to vote for it. And then they eventually decided to vote for it and, and enabled it to pass without any Democrats voting no, in part because uh, there was an agreement to create a task force to study the property tax problem. And I, I used to joke that if you'd committed a truly terrible crime that would uh, discredit your family's reputation for generations and you wanted to make sure that no one would ever find out about it, the best way to ensure that would be to have the Illinois General Assembly create a task force to study it. The <laughs> task forces of the Illinois legislature are just there to bury issues pretty much. And I was kind of astonished that a task force was all it took to get the people who were concerned about whether or not the fair tax was doing enough on property taxes on board. And so I guess my question is, how did that happen? Is this is this task force going to somehow change the world on property taxes? Was there, what was the the process like to get the last few Democrats on board so this thing could move forward with at least partisan unanimity? Yeah, I think sometimes, and I'm going to remind you of this, um, the anti-sexual harassment task force did accomplish things. Yeah, I think it true. depends who leads them, frankly, and if yeah. there's real intent to get the work done. Um, and that remains to be seen on this. You know, was it a case of, you know, uh, frankly, creating a task force so that people that were objecting to uh, putting the fair tax on the ballot uh, got something that they could, quote unquote, be working on over the next couple of years? So I guess the real question is, is it real? Yeah, is it real right. work? And that's what's going to remain to be seen. I mean, I certainly hope it is. Um, you know, if if a task force is done right, if the people that are heading it up want real work to be done, real work will be done. So it really matters who's heading them up and are they really there to do real work or is this just political cover? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that is it for our bonus episode. Thank you both so much for Gosh, being I'm here so with us. I'm so excited to be here. Thank I you. Know. So much fun. Thank you, right?
Thank you. All right. <laughs> Mostly for the snacks, right, Robert? Let's not put that on the air about my need to snack. I've, I've got a all reputation. Right. All right. All right. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for listening. As always, follow State Matters on social media. Obviously, there's a lot that we didn't get to cover here. So if you want to check that out, we'll be throwing up some additional articles. You can read more about what happened in this legislative session. And if you support what we do here, please drop us a line and or drop us some cash. Cash is always good. Cash is the best. Cash is king. But lines are good, too. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank Thank you, you, Melinda. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Casey, our heroic producer, and today, our co-host. Thank Thank you, co-host Casey. We're like missing Glennon's bye-bye. There's no way to end it. We're going to just talk forever. So we just say bye-bye.